Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wesexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 216, Remembering John Lellenberg. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. Your Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger shooter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello there, and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees, where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, hey, you know what? I just realized today is National Straw Hat Day. Yes, it is. It's the time of year when all gentlemen put aside their felt hats and take out their terrific Panama hats and straw caps to enjoy spring and summer. Well, I, for one, am ready to celebrate with the uh, the weather here. The show notes for this available are uh, for this avail for this episode are available at ihose.co slash ihose two sixteen. Uh, that's all lowercase. There you can find uh, links to some of the episodes we're going to mention today, as well as any uh, books or associated sites to which we will send you. And uh, there you can also leave us a comment to let us know how we're doing here. And if you wouldn't mind letting people know what you think about the show, if you leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, that would be extremely helpful. You don't have to have an iPhone to do that. Go right ahead and let people know what you think about I Hear of Sherlock everywhere. Well, um... This isn't really an episode that we were looking forward to, um, but it is nonetheless an episode that we felt we had to do. Um, in the past couple of weeks, we learned that uh, John Lellenberg has passed away. Uh, John was a legendary uh, Sherlockian, Doylean, and researcher. He contributed widely to the topics, the subject, um, for decades. Uh, we had him on the show for uh, a number of times to discuss some of his work, along with Dan Stassauer in uh, a few of those cases. And we just thought it would be an opportunity for us to reflect on the Sherlockian, Doylean career of John Lullenberg and to acknowledge some of his contributions. 
you really describe that very well because that's the key to John. He was a unique person in that he's one of the very, very, very few who was expert, absolutely expert, deeply knowledgeable, thoroughly researched, well-grounded, wrote considerably in the three areas of Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, and also Christopher Morley in the early and the founding of the Baker Street Irregulars. And um, it's a shame in looking back at the four times that we did talk with John that we didn't do more. But it's a one—it's a wonderful opportunity, at least for me, to hear his voice again and to bring back some of the magnificent work that he did and the discoveries that he made and to put his many contributions to our hobby and this interest in in some perspective and to share him with all of you who uh, may not have had the experience of talking with him and hearing his voice. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, <clears throat> you know, we had um, we had an opportunity to talk with John on four separate occasions. As I mentioned, three of those were with Dan Stassauer. Um, the first was episode 13, where we talked about A Life in Letters, as they looked uh, at, again, another biography of Conan Doyle. Episode, let's see, 20, uh, 37 was the lost manuscript of uh, John Smith, and we talked with both of them there. And then we talked with the two of them as a pair, finally on episode 49, looking at Dangerous Work, which was a look at the Whaling Journal of Conan Doyle. And then we had John on uh, by himself, I believe, episode 29 for his novel, Baker Street Irregular, which really took some of his uh, knowledge of the early BSIs and uh, of um, spy-bound Washington, of which he had quite an extensive knowledge, both modern and uh, historical. So, and, and to me, you know, one of the things that John will always be remembered for, uh, probably one of the first areas where I got to know him, was not only through his extensive writings in the Baker Street Journal, but in his role as the Thucydides of the Baker Street Irregulars. This was a role John held for quite a while as he was writing the first five volumes of the BSI's history <laughs> series or the archival series as it's known, these red-backed volumes that look very much like the red-backed volumes that Edgar Smith put out in the 1950s as the BSI was um, rejuvenating its desire to publish. Uh, the BSI history series was, um, I think, one of the first efforts specifically in that area. One of the things you'll hear today as we revisit these conversations with John, and as Scott, as you say, this ran the chronologically this this ran from November of 2007 when we first talked to him about the book Life and Letters to December 2012 when we talked to him about the book Dangerous Work. So it's during the course of those five years that we covered these topics. But one of the things you'll hear, listeners, when you hear um, some of these conversations is his enormous love and Nostalgia, oddly enough, nostalgia for a time in which he was not alive. John, uh, I don't, I think John was 75 uh, this year when he passed. Yeah, I think and, he was born in uh, 1946. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so he had he had a great nostalgic love for a time in which he did not live. But then many of us, you know, share this uh, enthusiasm for him. But one of the things you'll hear is how that that focus, that interest, that great affinity he felt for that time, that historical fascination he had for some of these details characterized his affection for the Baker Street Irregulars and his um, and a lot of his scholarly work, too. That is certainly correct. And before we go any further and get into these clips, I should note that we have um, a couple of things worth noting. One, the prize for the quiz this time around, which we'll do the quiz after we get through all of these clips, uh, our canonical couplets quiz. The prize is a copy of John's work, The Quest for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, 13 Biographers in Search of a Life. It's a kind of a survey uh, volume where he goes through some of the uh, biographers that had attempted to capture Conan Doyle, not a single one of them well or comprehensively. And I think this was the elusiveness of Conan Doyle that, um, you know, John was constantly seeking. Uh, so we do have a copy of this, uh, this book with a foreword from Dame Jean Conan Doyle. And then the other thing worth noting is we will have a link in the show notes to this. There is a an eBay auction that we're going to be putting up for probably one of the rarest Baker Street Journal Christmas annuals that you will ever experience. It is the 1998 BSJ Christmas Annual. This is the first time that the uh, when when the, the BSJ resurrected the Christmas annual tradition, and it's been going every year since. Uh, but this was the first Christmas annual in, gosh, 38 years, I believe. And it's by John, and it's called Entertainment and Fantasy, the 1940 BSI Dinner. <laughs> so in, in some ways, this was a um, an, an excerpt from the great work that John was doing in the BSI history series, but he specifically looked at that 1940 BSI dinner, which itself was so important because it was the resurrection of the BSI. It had been uh, fallow for a couple of years, and Edgar Smith came in. This was Edgar Smith's first entry to the Baker Street Irregulars, and it's a significant, uh, significant publication. So look for that on uh, eBay if you uh, would like a chance to uh, win that auction. And um, I'm sure we can put the proceeds towards something uh, helpful, like the John H. Watson Fund, which helps people get to the BSI Weekend, or uh, to the BSI Trust, something along those lines. So I uh, would love to have your interest and in bidding in that particular item. So why don't we get to the clips? Um, as, as you said, Bert, we first had a, a conversation with John and Dan on episode 13, which would have been back in 2007. And this was concerning the biography they had both worked on called uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, A Life in Letters. And as the title implies, they were looking through a lot of correspondence that Conan Doyle left behind. And there, there's an interesting um, comment here that I thought was worth surfacing because John was the American representative to the Conan Doyle estate. This was an important role uh, at the time, as uh, the Conan Doyle estate still was overseeing a lot of uh, stories that were in 
public, uh, not in public domain. We're, we're still protected by copyright. And John had a lot of dealings directly with Dame Jean Conan Doyle, who was the only surviving child of Conan Doyle by that time. And uh, we, we talked with him a little bit about what he could tell us about Dame Jean and her personality and how she approached this. Adrian and Dennis Conan Doyle were the sons by the second marriage, as was Jean. She was the youngest of the three children by uh, between Arthur Conan Doyle and Jean Lackey. And Jean uh, thought her father a great man just as much as her brothers did. But she went about that with a, a considerably sunnier personality than they did. She was quite a commanding personality in her own right. She had joined the Royal Air Force in 1938. Uh, she did intelligence work during the war. She stayed in afterwards until she was a general in the RAF and the highest-ranking woman in it. She had been an aide to camp to the Queen. And after retiring, she married a uh, retired Air Vice Marshal in the RAF named uh, Sir Geoffrey Bromit. And she thought it was a shame that her father's papers were locked away as long as they were because of this litigation, which was between her and her brother Adrian's widow, Anna, on one side, and her brother Dennis's widow, Nina, on the other. Um, this went on a long, long time. In fact, quite a while after Nina died, because she died without direct heirs, she died in test aid, other, her other kin had to be found. And it went through quite a long process, but until late 1997. But it was Jean's hope, particularly, that her father's letters to her, to her grandmother should be published one day because she felt that they represented his life and his mind so faithfully. And it was a goal that she charged her chosen executor, uh, Charles Foley, with. As you said, Charles is Arthur Conan Doyle's great nephew. His uh, grandmother was Conan Doyle's younger sister, Ida who had married a cousin, uh, Nelson Foley, who was uh, part of Arthur Conan Doyle's mother's family. She was uh, Mary Foley originally before marrying uh, Arthur's father. And Charles feels the family legacy very keenly as well. So this has been a project very dear to his heart as it was to Jane's. Hmm. Well, that that kind of uh, familial familiarity, as it were, uh, was essential as, as far as John's work goes. And we were fortunate to have someone like him who had such a good relationship with Dame Jean and uh, then with, uh, with Charles Foley as well. Yes, indeed. And I think you can pick up even there, you know, some wonderful little intersections and connections deeper than you might think between John and Dame Jean, because he mentioned Dame Jean's intelligence work during the war. And John, in addition to being a great scholar and a great Sherlockian and a great academic in his way, I think is also a great American. John devoted most of his professional career, as you'll hear, to work in the Pentagon in the intelligence area. And in fact, John graduated from the University of Southern California with a Bachelor of Arts degree. And uh, that was the University of Southern California School of International Relations. And he went on to get a Master of Arts degree and got a Master of Science degree at the National War College. So intelligence and intelligence operations was um, something that was John's John's professional background, but also he felt, and, and you, you mentioned this earlier, Scott, too, about the time in which the Conan Doyle, his work with the Conan Doyle estate was 
uh, so important. It was a time when he was really Dame Jean's uh, representative in the United States to make sure that she derived the proper recognition and the proper economic value that she should when her father's work was um, being used and popularized and promoted and printed. And uh, she, I know she was deeply grateful to him for acting in that role for so many years. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, she really felt like there were, John was a kindred spirit when it came to that. And he understood the, the family's wishes. He understood the uh, sensitivity with which uh, some of these things should be undertaken. And, you know, I think through his decades of work on Doylean material, he really got a good feel for uh, Conan Doyle and, and what Conan Doyle would have would have considered. And that actually leads pretty well into another clip I pulled from a, a different episode when we talked to John about um, the narrative of John Smith, that lost Conan Doyle manuscript. And... So first of all, the the original manuscript of John Smith had been lost, and and Conan Doyle had written to his mother about this. He he said he'd have to um, start it again from scratch, and it it wasn't really his best work. And first of all, it wasn't finished, but also the narrative itself was a little weak, <laughs> which is ironic since it was the narrative of John Smith. Um, and and in deciding whether to bring this to the public. We asked John about how he approached that. Again, keeping in mind that he had this relationship with the Doyle family, the Foley family, and wanted to do best by Sir Arthur's memory. Um, and and, and here's, here's John's response. So, so was the decision not to uh, publish this? Uh, obviously, it was it was unfinished for one. But do you think, in Doyle's heart of hearts, that he didn't think at that point it was up to snuff and simply did not put the effort back into it to complete it, or that he knew that it was uh, simply not worth uh, worth publishing based on what he had already put out, and decided, you know what, let's just uh, let's just keep this quiet. I'm trying to put myself in his head on that very point, and I don't have a very good answer. Um, he says to his mother at the beginning that he is going to rewrite it from memory. We found, on the other hand, uh, elements in it, things he's quoting and so forth, that were extremely fresh, uh, freshly published. Uh, they could not have been in the earlier novel because they hadn't been published yet. So uh, even as he was supposedly rewriting it from memory, uh, new thoughts, new material was creeping into it. What I think he eventually concluded is that even if he might have been strengthening the novel that way, it didn't have much of a trajectory as a novel as far as, as, far as plot was concerned. Um, I have no idea how the original version of this, which did reach up at some point, a final page with the end written at the bottom of it, what that was like. Because, as I, you know, as, as we said, and there's no indication that anything other than this was going to happen, 
it's John Smith sitting on the couch in his room, laid up by gout, ruminating about things. Yeah. So that that in itself is is interesting, but then when we couple it with something that John also said in this episode, where there's actually a good deal of self-doubt that Conan Doyle has early on in his career. I mean, we think of Conan Doyle now as this master storyteller, this writer who was able to give birth to characters that uh, certainly have outstripped him in terms of popularity and um, uh, attention in the public. Uh, yet there was a time in his career where he was still getting his feet under him. He was you know, a struggling physician, let's recall. And he wondered whether, uh, whether he'd be able to make the leap from you know, a contributor or article writer to an actual author. So he's in his early 20s. He's still working a medical practice. He's in South Sea. And he has this sort of background of publishing essays and short stories. And why don't you pick it up from there? Well, well I think that background was still fairly thin at the time. Uh, he had published some stories and articles. Um, he probably had more rejection notices than acceptances at that point. And uh, none of them had really gotten him a great deal of attention because of that pernicious custom, as he thought, of publishing works of fiction in magazines without any byline. Um, so it was, you know, to, to uh, he saw writing a novel as a way to get his name on the title page finally and on the spine of a, of a volume and actually get the whatever recognition and credit his, uh, his, the, the work's merits would uh, bring him. He was um, very insecure about his ability uh, to transition from a short story writer, in which he was still striving to become quite the writer he wanted to be, uh, to a novel, whether he could sustain the plot over the length of a novel, whether he could develop characterizations that would be sustainable at that length as well. And... Frankly, on the evidence of this first novel, uh, he, he wasn't yet able to, uh, but it was a very necessary step in his development as a writer. And uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to the, to the actual nature of, of the narrative of John Smith, but it, uh, its survival provides a remarkable window into the mind of a, of a very young uh, 23, 24-year-old struggling writer uh, who's basically writing in order to supplement a, a fair, still very thin income as a struggling physician. <laughs> remarkable. Yeah, it, is, it is remarkable. And it's one of the lovely things that with these three enthusiasms and these three areas of focus around the BSI and Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, you know, John could do some really wonderful synthesis, but it was also always based on research in the access and study he's made over the years, he and Dan, to the letters of Conan Doyle and all these other things. The manuscript is uh, really unique. I, there's no one else, I don't think, who's uh, 
been been down this road as deeply and as well as John did. No, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And we will hear a little bit more about that depth and some of those examples right after this quick word. Hey, have you checked in with our friends at MX Publishing lately? My gosh, they never stop. And that's a good thing. They currently have three Kickstarters running, uh, including Sherlock Holmes and the Pandemic of Death, which has earned a Project We Love ranking from Kickstarter. Uh, In this case, Sherlock Holmes tackles a murderer during the 1918 flu pandemic. That's right, the original pandemic uh, from 100 years ago or so. That is going on for the next 12 days or so. Still time to check that out, as well as a number of other Kickstarters there. There's also Sherlock Holmes, The Treasure of the Poison King by Paul Gilbert. And we would be remiss if we didn't also note that the MX Book of New Sherlock Holmes Stories, Volumes 25 through 27, come out on... May 22nd. That's right, Conan Doyle's birthday. This marks the 5 million words mark of that series. Over 570 stories. 575 stories now. 200 authors. 27 volumes. 13,000 pages. My goodness. So much to check out there at mxpublishing.com. There's something for everyone related to Sherlock Holmes at MX Publishing. One of the big events of the Sherlockian world back in 2012 was the publication of a diary by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that I don't believe many people knew even existed. And it went back to uh, even before it was, obviously before it was published, I think when it first surfaced was something like five or six years before. In any case, Scott, that was the very first question we uh, you asked um, John and Dan Stashauer, how did anybody even know that the diary existed? And here's how John and Dan told that story. Well, it had been uh, part of the huge trove of Conan Doyle's papers and manuscripts that had long been locked up um, in a solicitor's vault because of litigation within the family. And uh, when Dame Jean Jean Conan Doyle realized in the uh, summer of 1997 that she had terminal cancer, she went into overdrive to get this litigation which is now into its second or third generation, resolved. And a division of the inheritance of the papers and the manuscripts between her and other members of the family. And the the diary in particular had been part of this um, its entire lifetime in family hands and locked away and went to the heirs of Anna Conan Doyle, Adrian's uh, widow. Um, and it is, it is still in the family's possession and in a safe deposit box 
at an undisclosed secure location in, in near Winchester, England. Now, how we discovered that the manuscript was there is a story that I think Dan tells very well about a trip that he and I took up to New York City. So actually in the winter months of uh, 2004, uh, John and I went up on, a, on the train from Washington to, uh, to see these items that were being offered in the Christie's uh, showroom. And, it, and it, really, it was really wonderful. These items hadn't been seen for years and years and years. And I remember, uh, you know, for the first time, we're seeing things like the brass nameplate from the medical practice in South Sea, seeing the words Dr. Conan Doyle. That, uh, that hung outside of the building where Sherlock Holmes was, was born, and his medical armband that he wore while serving as a field surgeon in South Africa, and the South Sea notebooks uh, in which we see the words, a tangled skein, written and then blotted out and replaced with the words, a study in scarlet. And it's just, just amazing, uh, amazing treasures. But the one item that really stood out, I think the one item that uh, John and I agreed <laughs> if we you know, had uh, uh, world enough in time we'd like to own was this whaling diary, which was not only an amazingly significant biographical uh, object, but also visually stunning. Uh, we could only see one page staring up at us, but it was, it was beautiful because you not only saw that, that uh, Conan Doyle handwriting that we know from other places, but these illustrations, and we came to find out when we asked to have the diary taken out of the glass case, there were uh, illustrations on almost every page. I think we counted 70 in all. Black and white pen and ink drawings, uh, some of which he had gone back later on with water watercolors and worked over again. Uh, absolutely a nice high popper. The estimate was between 70,000 and 100,000 pounds for uh, the Log of the Hope. Yeah, a little rich for my blood. So uh, do, do we know what it actually fetched at auction? It didn't fetch at auction. In fact, the family was obligated, I suppose. Uh, they felt morally obligated to uh, to include this in the auction. But it was something so special they really didn't want to part with it, and they set a very high reserve on it. And so it, rem it went unsold and remained in their hands. Where, where it remains today. Hmm. Conan Doyle, the doodler. Who knew? <laughs> well, he came from, a, as we discussed with John and Dan, he came from a generation of artists and cartoonists and caricatures, That's including, right. including Dickie Doyle. And they're very good, but it's, um, it's wonderful to hear that again and to recognize how much trust the family placed in John and how attuned uh, and empathic he was about, about things like the family's interest at that time. Mm. One of the things we, we then went on to do was to ask John to read an extract from the diary. And he selected this one because it showed Conan Doyle's innate gifts as a storyteller. And both John and Dan remark on these early signs of Conan Doyle's literary talents. But in this particular extract from the diary, they had had several disappointments previously to this when uh, they had sighted whales, but they had failed to get them. He uh, says at one point that he had, he had always thought that if you saw a whale, you got your whale, and he found out that that's not, not true at all. It was very, very difficult to and dangerous to. This time they did. 
and the excerpt reads, Nothing had been seen all day, and I had gone down to the cabin about 10 o'clock when I heard a sort of bustle on deck. Then I heard the captain's voice in the masthead, Lower away the two waste boats. I rushed into the mate's berth and gave the alarm. Colin, the mate, was dressed, but the second mate rushed on deck in his shirt with his trousers in his hand. When I got my head above the hatchway, the very first thing I saw was the whale shooting its head out of the water and gambling about at the other side of a large sconce piece of ice. It was a beautiful night with hardly a ripple on the deep green water. In jumped the crews into their boats, and the officers of the watch looked that their guns were primed and ready. Then they pushed off, and the two long whale boats went crawling away on their wooden legs, one to each side of the bit of ice, the other to the other. Carner had hardly got up to the ice when the whale came up again about 40 yards in front of the boat, throwing almost its whole body out of the water and making the foam fly. There was a chorus of, Now, Adam, now's your chance, from the line of eager watchers on the vessel's side. But Adam Carner, a grizzled and weather-beaten harpooner, knows better. The whale's small eye is turned towards him, and the boat lies as motionless as the ice behind it. But now it has shifted, its tail is toward them. Pull, boys, pull! Out shoots the boat from the ice. Will the fish dive before he can get up to it? That is the question in every mind. He is nearing it, and it still lies motionless. Nearer yet, and nearer. Now he is standing up to his gut and has dropped his oar. Three strokes, boys, he says, as he turns the quid in his cheek. And then there is a bang and a foaming of waters and a shouting. And then up goes the little red flag in Carner's boat, and the whale line runs out merrily. Now, I know I wasn't writing texts like that at the age of 20. Quite remarkable. It's, it's so very striking because you see so many elements of the style that we would come to know and enjoy so much. This is a, a textbook example of a writer who has learned to show, don't tell, in his writing. Hmm. The thrill of the chase. I, I uh, mean, it's so apparent right there. But it's so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, think about the writers, the great writers of whom we really know practically nothing. For example, Shakespeare. So if you were descended by, to William Shakespeare, now I'm not putting Arthur Conan Doyle in the same category as William Shakespeare, but imagine if you were a descendant <laughs> of William Shakespeare and it turns out one day you've got a diary that he made on a trip when he was 20. Um, and that's really what happened to the family when this manuscript was finally freed up from all of that litigation. And the lovely thing about the work that, that Dan and John did was to find these links, you know, to be able to look at that work, but also to say, to appreciate because of their own deep knowledge, um, what it presaged, you know, what it told you about, about the writer. Yeah. Um, well, and let's not forget too, that um, this was a trip on which uh, Conan Doyle would become the inveterate swimmer of the ship, uh, <laughs> having been dunked a, a, a number of times into the Arctic Ocean, or um, was it was it the Arctic Ocean or the yeah the, yeah I think so yeah. yeah it was it was an Arctic whaler so um, and 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 being chided for it uh, by his crewmates. Yeah, we always ask our guests. Um, particularly when we're talking about manuscripts and things like that. Did you have any great surprises when you were working on this particular project? Well, when we were talking to Dan and John about dangerous work, 
they found a great surprise, a terrific link to Sherlock Holmes that they found at the end of the diary. And here's how they told us that story. This is the next to last entry in the log. It's dated August 10th, 1880. And the, the voyage is almost at its end. The hope is returning home. And they're making a brief stop at, uh, at Lurick in the Shetland Islands. And they're letting off about a third of the crew who were uh, Shetland Islanders. And Conan Doyle writes this passage. Passed the scary light and came down to Lurick, but did not get into the harbor as we are in a hurry to catch the tide at Peterhead. A girl was seen at the lighthouse waving a handkerchief and all hands were called out to look at her. The first woman we have seen for half a year. Our Shetland crew were landed in four of our boats and gave three cheers for the old ship as they pushed off, which were returned by the men left. Lighthouse keeper came off with last week's weekly Scotsman, by which we learn of the defeat in Afghanistan. Terrible news. Now you can imagine how this struck our ears. John describes, uh, as he was the one who was uh, transcribing this passage of the log, and he describes that, uh, you know, he pretty much fell out of his chair. It was certainly unexpected in this Arctic diary to find in the next to last entry a direct link to a study in Scarlet, which he would write six years later. I was transcribing it from camera shots, thinking this is all very interesting when, you know, when suddenly I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. And we went and we tracked, tracked down uh, the issue of the, uh, of the Scotsman that, uh, that he would have been looking at two weeks before that Edinburgh newspaper the Battle of Maiwand had taken place in Afghanistan. And the, the, the entry reads, a terrible and most unlooked-for disaster has befallen the British arms in Afghanistan. Severe defeat at Burroughs Brigade, Brigade retreat on Kandahar. You know, the, the facts are well known. A British force of about 3,000 men had been all but annihilated at Maiwand by Pathan tribesmen. This made a lasting impression. Uh, that detail. The army surgeon uh, injured at my wand would be put to good use, as we all know. I used to uh, keep secrets in my career at the Pentagon. Uh, this is what I was walking around with for about five years, <laughs> <laughs> hoping that one day we would be able to actually publish this diary. And finally, we have. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have been able to keep mum for that long. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Well, well yeah. you see... Yeah. What character? Well, we then, uh, now that conversation happened in 2012, but two years before, we had the opportunity to talk to John about his only, well, I don't know if it is his only novel. It's the only novel of his that I know about, which was published at that time called Baker Street Irregular. And it's set in the 1930s and the 1940s. And it involves a host of characters, including the founders of the Baker Street Irregulars. And I, I began that conversation by asking John about the 1930s. You know, was it a period of history that he was especially fond of? And in that part of the discussion was one of the very rare times I ever heard John speak, even generally, about uh, his work at the Pentagon and how it led him to write this book. Um, very much so, I think. Um, it's rather like the 1850s and uh, the Civil War. 1930s was another occasion in which uh, the political conflicts were too great to be reconciled. 
uh, and peaceful manners in the world. In the, the 1930s case, the entire world went to war. And it's a period that related very much to my work in Washington, D.C., where I spent 35 years, uh, the last 30 of them, at the uh, Pentagon involved in such issues. And in some ways, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't have been able to write it if I had not been at the Pentagon, but it would never have occurred to me to write it if I had not been there, I think. Uh, the, the impulse for it, the idea for it, came in equal parts from my BSI history work and some of Pentagon life and work. It was certainly uh, helpful to be there and to draw upon its resources to research some of the uh, wartime intelligence activities. I, I did policy and strategy work in, in the office of the Secretary of Defense. I don't mean his immediate office, uh, that the, but the, that organization, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, is a very large one, and I was in what was called the policy cluster. Some of the work I did was analytical in nature. Um, some of it was operational in nature. Uh, it, it had to do with intelligence matters uh, the, from beginning to end on a daily basis. And um, my last eight years, uh, and, until... I retired from the Pentagon in uh, February 2006. We're spent in the Special Operations Bureau. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's worth noting, too, that John was working in his office at the Pentagon on September 11th and was quite close to, as I understood it, to uh, where American Airlines Flight 77 struck the building, which... Um, cost the lives of 184 people on the plane and, and in the building. Mm. And um, something else he never talked about, at least not to me, but, but certainly must have had an effect on, uh, dramatic effect on him. Yeah, no doubt. Well, John took his work uh, very seriously. I mean, he took his hobbies very seriously as well. <laughs> Uh, there's no question that he was a thorough researcher who would uh, seek all kinds of sources for information for crafting a well-thought-out and well-informed story. Yeah, very much so. And as the conversation went on, uh, you know, just to make that point, one of the things we had into was a discussion of prohibition. And we pointed out that just because alcohol was illegal at the time didn't mean that it was unavailable and here's what john had to say about that it was actually more available because it was illegal it it, it stimulated drinking and it stimulated the production and sale of alcohol i don't think we would have uh, the bsi certainly not the, the one founded in 1934 by christopher morley and his friends had it not been for prohibition the bsi was uh, gestated in the back of Chris Chella's speakeasy, where Woody first meets Morley and the regulars in late 1933. And being born in the speakeasy accounts for the BSI's boisterous nature, its proclivity for strange rites, ribald songs about the canon's characters, uh, some of its opaque management procedures, <laughs> um, and down to deny the authorship of A. Conan Doyle and, of course, Elmer Davis's constitution and bylaws uh, could not have been possible as they were written without prohibition in the speakeasy world. 
to its misfortune, perhaps, the BSI has gotten very big, a little stuffy, and awfully corporate in our time. But the original BSI, Christopher Morley's and Woody Hazelbaker's BSI in the 1930s and the early 40s, was nothing like that. It was a very much smaller, much more intimate, very informal, rather boisterous crew of people who used the Sherlock Holmes stories as an excuse to get together and socialize and carouse in a pretty well-lubricated way. Now, it, it sounds like John Lullenberg was a, um, a throwback to Groucho Marx, that um, he was... Uh-huh. He was hankering for membership in this club that might not have had him as a member, <laughs> given the exclusivity that he sought. Well, you know, it's interesting. He had such a nostalgia for the 1930s and the 1940s and such a love of the time and such a sense of fun of the time that um, he felt that anything, particularly an organization founded in that spirit, that anything that got too far away from that, you know, was just, um, he felt, he felt no, didn't seem to feel any deep connection or empathy for, um, the evolution of it and, and remained, I think, to the end, very, very fixated on or fixed on, um, those original spirits, which yeah. are really wonderful. But as our conversation went on about his book, Baker Street Irregular, uh, one of the things we talked about was the reluctance of the United States to enter World War II and the public and political complexity and the feelings of the time and how they uh, were, uh, how they, how the feelings of the time were expressed by different members of those early Baker Street Irregulars. And here's what John had to say about that. Well, this is absolutely correct. That was a time that I think has been eclipsed by the country coming together to fight the war once we were in it. But as Europe went to war, we were neutral by law as a reaction to the World War I experience. Uh, the country was strongly isolationist, and a number of very influential organizations took shape in the 1939-41 period to reinforce that isolationism and neutrality. And the most important of these was an organization founded at Yale called America First, and its principal spokesman was Charles Lindbergh, who was a true American hero if we had one at that time. So between the advocates of isolation and neutrality and those who wanted to support the Allies, and particularly Britain, and for all, in all measures, short of war and, if necessary, war itself, it was an extremely bitter debate you know, from late 1939 to the end of 1941 when, the, when Pearl Harbor occurred. And I think many Americans have forgotten or don't realize just how bitter and divisive that debate is. And I've tried to depict it because the divisions were felt even inside the BSI. One of the three Morley brothers, Felix Morley, was one of the principal spokesmen for isolationism in the United States. Then and later, while others like Elmer Davis were quietly, almost clandestinely involved in anti-isolationist, anti-neutrality activities. You don't see this reflected particularly in the contemporary correspondence 
that animates my 30s and early 40s volumes of the BSI archival histories. You see a few marks, and they're usually coming from Edgar W. Smith, about basically how much he dislikes Charles Lindbergh for his position he's taking. The, the BSI were indeed very divided themselves on this, mostly. They were pro-British. I mean, some, they were all Anglophiles, of course. Many of them had studied in England. A couple of them were actually English by birth. And they became involved in these activities. And occasionally, uh, at least in one principal case, and that being Fletcher Pratt, I decided I would write him into these activities. And then, in the course of subsequent research, discovered that I, I wasn't actually making this up. He had been. And it's, it's a story that is not well known in, among Sherlockians and Baker Street Regulars. It's not, and it's something I've been very happy to have the opportunity to tell in this novel. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, given what we know about Charles Lindbergh now, I am grateful to Edgar Smith for his position. Huh. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know it's an, it really is an enjoyable novel. It's it's a love letter to people who would like to cast away the present and dwell for an hour or two in those offices on those streets um, with those issues. But it's interesting to hear the level of ver- the level of truth and accuracy John brought to his to his work to try to portray the conversations, the discoveries, the discussions, the decision about entering the war. And it's interesting, in some things I've seen, you know, recently, in terms of films and programs, more of that is coming up that, um, you know, I think is, um, you know, a fact about people taking another look back at those days. Mm. And, and last, in this conversation, one of the things we asked John was, if any of his friends or colleagues had read the book, and we're surprised to find out there was a Sherlock Holmes Society back in the 1930s. And he found that some of his former colleagues also loved Sherlock Holmes. And here's how he told us that. I'm, I'm, I'm discovering things about my friends. When I was at the <laughs> Pentagon, and I also had this very active life at the Baker Street Irregulars, I did my best to compartmentalize those two parts of my life, not let them interpenetrate, and certainly not let the BSI penetrate my professional life. And I mostly got away with it. I can only think of, in, in, the, in the mid-years of one case where my name appeared in a Harper's, no, I'm sorry, an Atlantic Monthly article, and somebody I worked with asked if that was me, and I, and I said, no, that's the other John Willenberg, and I'm, since he worked for CIA, I think he actually believed that. When Caleb Carr's novel, The Italian Secretary, was published in around 2004 or so, he asked me to write an afterword for it. That really blew my my cover in my own life because I found that he had a surprising following for his fiction among special operations officers. And I was working in that part of the community at the time, and I started hearing from special forces officers and other special ops people from coast to coast about this, which made me decide probably it was a good thing that I was getting close to leaving the life, coming in from the cold, so to speak. But I think, well, even in my, my old profession, you hear Sherlock Holmes everywhere. The BSI who came in from the cold. <laughs> no question. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well, isn't it interesting that Sherlock Holmes, who was uh, covert himself for well over a year in the Irish Secret Society in Buffalo and uh, other activities when he was 
doing his covert operation in advance of Von Bork and his last bow. Isn't it interesting that it would be Sherlock Holmes that would out John? <laughs> well, I never thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a wonder, you know, John, we haven't talked about so many things about John, uh, but it, the good thing is we can focus on hearing his voice. You know, he was a contributing editor to Baker Street Miscellany for years. We began looking at some of his Baker Street Journal appearances, and they are too numerous to mention. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's a terrific thing to be able to look back on just these four examples of his uh, contributions and to recognize what he's brought to our collective interest in Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, Christopher Morley, and the Baker Street Irregulars. Absolutely. And there's so much more to explore on John's website, bsiarchivalhistory.org. Um, it's not necessarily the most intuitively uh, organized site. Uh, you know, there's a lot to explore there. There's some hidden items there as well. Um, but we'll provide the main site as well as a few links. There are a series of there's a series of five essays that John was working on. I, I think his hope was to eventually do a biography of Edgar W. Smith. Uh, there's a series of five wonderful essays to help you get to know Smith a little better as well. Um, so those are those are worth looking through, as well as uh, the editor's gas bag and uh, disputations and uh, essays and blogs and links and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we'll have a link to John's website as well. I mean, ultimately, you know, how do we how do we sum this up? I mean, boy, uh, John and Dan did Arthur Conan Doyle: A Life in Letters. John Lullenberg is a life in not only letters, but essays and articles and books and editing and commentary and, and appearing on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of things there. But um, he's, he was really a, a multifaceted man who contributed so much to the world of Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle. Here, here. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote 22 novels. The one he thought his best is an adventure story of knights and chivalry. 20-year-old Alan Edrickson travels the world, encountering bullies, con artists, thieves, a damsel in distress, and two men who become his closest friends. Together they join the White Company, archers and fighters led by the gallant Sir Nigel Loring. Will our hero win the hand of Loring's romantic daughter Maud? Will the chivalrous Prince Edward restore Peter of Castile to his Spanish throne? Published in 1891 and never out of print, The White Company is a tale of pageantry and piracy, heraldry and hope, published now in an exclusive, annotated edition with the original N.C. Wyeth illustrations in blazing color. Don't you owe it to yourself to read Conan Doyle's favorite book? Get the annotated White Company at wessexpress.com. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. 
You know what that song means, Bert? Well, it's time to get your turtle wax out. And it's also, it's also time for everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right. It's Canonical Couplets, where we give you two lines of poetry, and you are supposed to name the Sherlock Holmes story in question. Now, the last time we were here, we gave you this clue. A famous year for Sherlock Holmes of triumphs, twas no lack. But why the morning journey to the butchers, then and back? Bert, do you know which Sherlock Holmes story this refers to? Yes, yes I do. That is the strange case of the policeman who hired Violet Hunter to do his laundry. That's the case they called the copper's bleaches. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to say no on that one. No. Uh, shocking, I know. We were looking for Black Peter, the adventure oh. of Black Peter. Yeah. Goodness. Oh, yeah. well. I know. I know. Well, we got a lot of a lot of good entries on that one, including our friend Eric Deckers. Eric Deckers, who was uh, able to come to your rescue again, Bert. Um, Thank goodness. And he did guess uh, the adventure of uh, Black Peter, but he also said, at first, I thought the answer to the canonical couplet was Harpooner. I nearly killed her. <laughs> Thanks for that, Eric. Well, good thing we had the canned laughter available. Um, it, it, it covers up the groans and the bleedings. Um, so what we will do here is we will pull out our big prize wheel and give it a big spin. There it goes. And it's slowing down. Arriving at number... Number 28. Number 28. And that gives us... Oh, my goodness. I'm, I, and I'm, I hope I don't butcher this name. Speaking of butchers, Marquetta Kosi. Marquetta Kosi from the Czech Republic. I think this is our first entry from the Czech Republic. We had a few this time around. It could be from that wonderful Sherlockian-Sherlock.com uh, link that we have. We, we uh, promoted some material from that website, which is... Uh, based in Czechoslovakia. So, Marketa, congratulations. You will be getting a copy of uh, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London anniversary uh, book, This August and Scholarly Body. So, we'll have that sent off to you. And now, it's time for this episode's canonical couplet. Bert, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, then. Here we go. Mrs. Warren's lodger paid her well, five pounds a week, to pierce the lodger's mystery. In a mirror, Holmes would peek. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among the correct answers and we choose you at random, you will win our prize. Good luck. And just a reminder, that prize is the quest for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, 13 Biographers in Search of a Life, edited by John Lellenberg, with a foreword by Dame Jean Conan Doyle. Fantastic, fantastic 
opportunity there. Well, Bert, any other words of wisdom before we wrap up today? Words of wisdom. No, I can't think of anything. I'm just sort of continuing my voyage down the uh, construction of end-to-end user-sensitive platforms that provide (laughs) a consistent brand experience and treat each one of my clients' ethoses as if it were my own, because that's the sort of fellow I am. Wow. You know, if I didn't know you, I would have no idea you're in marketing and communications. (laughs) If if you didn't know me, you wouldn't want to. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, until we come back here next time on the 30th of the month, I remain the knowable Scott Monty. And I'm just left behind as the ignorant Burt Walder. (laughs) And together we say... The Games Afoot! The Games Afoot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 